Uh, the middle of the week and lots going on on Radio 1 today. This is Playback Daily. I'm Carol Moran and here's what you might have missed. Today was the first time I have actually broke and um, realised that I actually can't do anymore. The security of my my family, my me and my child, is just, just none anymore. We're being made homeless at the end of this month. Me, my four kids, my two grandkids. Um, the stress of it is diabolical. And that's essentially when all hell broke loose. Uh, Enoch Burke called the judges a disgrace. Other members of the Burke family were shouting at the judges. The judges left the courtroom and Gardaí then attempted to clear the court. And then there were scenes which were, as you say, chaotic. They were disturbing. They were, in fact, a bit distressing. And we'll start with Morning Ireland, the lifting of the eviction ban and mother of one Grace's fears of homelessness. The government has defended its decision to lift the ban on evictions despite warnings that this will lead to a rise in homelessness. According to ministers, there was a danger that extending the ban would lead to more landlords selling up and it has promised new measures to help renters. Grace is the mother of a young child. She's been renting a house in North County Dublin for nearly five years years using the housing assistance payment. She received an eviction notice last year. The introduction of the eviction ban gave her until the middle of next month to find a new home. Last night she spoke to our reporter Ashling Maloney. Now with this eviction ban being lifted um, I basically have nowhere to go and I don't know what's going to happen anymore. You've been looking for somewhere else since last March, one whole year. How? What kind of leads have you had in that time, Grace? I've had four viewings altogether since last March, one including today that had, I'd say, about 10 other people there, families, single people, professional people. I didn't even get a call back for the last two. One, I got a call back, but they were looking for two months up front. I, I have five weeks left um, and I don't actually know. Um, there's no homeless accommodation left anymore um, for anyone. Do I live in my car? Do I go to a homeless accommodation? But there is no homeless accommodation for us. I haven't given up hope. I've been praying to any God that's there to please just help me get somewhere to have some security for my, me and my child. And today I woke up get ready for work and I came through on my uh, notifications that there was the eviction ban isn't being extended and I today was the first time I have actually broke and um, realised that I actually can't do anymore I like there's nothing more I can do and there's no help anymore and um, the security of my my family my me and my child is just, just none anymore I don't like it I don't even know what to say. Like, I just, it's not fair. I understand the landlords, there's landlords out there that want to sell or they want to move back home and I get that. But what about us? What about the people that have paid their rent and what about the people that have worked their whole life to not be in this position? I don't want anything for free. I want a roof over my family's head to keep me and my child safe. And that's just not possible at the moment. Where do you go from here? Are you going to continue doing viewings? Are you going to reach out for homeless accommodation, emergency accommodation? What's your next move? I replied as a homeless person today and that was absolutely heartbreaking. Through seven areas I've put down through Daft, there's 42 properties to rent and not one of them are under two grand. 
like that must have been really hard to register yourself as a homeless person. For a person who's worked since I'm 15 years of age and I've been brought up in a an amazing family home, it it's just it's overcrowded if I go home. That's why I can't and it's not their fault, it's not my fault, it's just the way it is. And the fact that I had to do that, it brought shame on me. Like I felt so I've never felt so low in my life than I did today hearing that news and then having to do that while I'm in work and while I'm my child's in school and like it's just the shame I feel is it's heartbreaking like I'm I'm breaking it's a horrible horrible feeling and I never ever in my life thought I'd be in this position ever and I swear down to you I never thought I'd have to bring myself to do that and to like be 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 one of them be another number to people who don't care about you I'm another number Grace speaking to Ashling Maloney on Morning Ireland then Rachel English spoke to Marion Finnegan from estate agent Sherry Fitzgerald Listening to Grace there it's clear that the current situation is having an appalling impact on many people. Is there any hard evidence that landlords were selling up specifically because of the moratorium on evictions? No, absolutely not. That's an absolutely horrifying story and Grace is in an impossible situation which she should not be in. Landlords have been selling up and this is not new new news or even good news. For selling up for 10 years, we've seen an exodus of landlords. So 10 years ago, it was... Um, There were two landlords leaving for every one investor in the marketplace. Last year, we reached a point where 37% of our vendors were landlords leaving the marketplace. So what that means in numbers to people listening is that over 21,000 landlords left the market last year. Now, unfortunately, they're leaving for a variety of reasons. Some are are leaving the marketplace um, because uh, their families... um, a requirement necessitates them to, to bring in funding. Others are leaving because the tax situation just makes the um, investment unviable. Others are leaving because the structure around lettings is so complicated that they can't cope with it anymore. But they're speaking with their feet. And unfortunately, this eviction moratorium, which was brought in in October, led people to believe that something would be done to, to stop that outflow of, of landlords. But literally, Nothing was done until the last minute of the last month when we had a meeting last night with the government where they decided, where the government had a meeting, decided what they would do to address the situation. And that's why Grace is in this impossible position. Private landlords are not responsible for um, the state's housing policy, but it's been placed on their shoulders and something more needs to be done to address this situation. So as you see it then, is that the crux of the problem here, that no additional measures were put in place during that six-month hiatus when, when maybe other measures could have been introduced? So we now have a situation where there's a real danger that people like Grace leaving their homes in the coming weeks will have nowhere to go. Absolutely. And it's not even just additional measures. We have to look back and see what has happened over the last 10 or 12 years to the private landlords in this country. And they have been continuously, the tax structure for private landlords has been continuously increased and made more challenging. And the overall regulation of the market has become incredibly intense so that landlords are not in a position to to understand completely where their next steps are. Mm. Is regulation necessarily a bad thing, though? I mean, we saw in this country 10, 15 years ago what happens when you have the so-called light touch regulation. 
Exactly. You do need regulation, but it is about a balance so that everyone can operate in the marketplace. One of the changes, specifically the rent controls um, that were brought in a number of years ago in an effort to slow down rental inflation, the concept is fine, but the reality is rent controls have the exact opposite impact on the marketplace. They make it even more challenging for private landlords to exist and they make a simple decision with their own investment not to remain in the marketplace. So when you see 21,000 landlords leaving a marketplace in a 12-month period, you know you're doing something wrong. You need to take action then. Marion Finnegan there. Then later, a report from Tala where Louise Byrne was talking to people queuing to view a property to rent. The last time I checked, I have employed 486 houses and this is my third view. And that's in the last year. <laughs> I've literally applied to everything. I have. I work full time. I have my deposits, references, everything ready to go. And last night I applied to another 80, 82 houses last night. My daughter hasn't like she hasn't been to stay with me for the last year. <laughs> it's a nightmare. I, I want, you know, my daughter needs her own place, like you know. She's seven years old going to school, so like I have to literally have her own place. And at the moment I'm going from place to place. As you can see, I'm a business development manager. I drive around, I work full time, and a few nights I've had to stay in my van now. <laughs> I've nowhere to go, like, you know. This is probably my 17th or 18th property beyond in the last, say, six months. Um, I'm currently sleeping in my car at the moment. Um, I'm working Monday to Friday. Um, I get up in the morning, drive to work, drive back, park somewhere in a housing estate, go sleep in the back of the car, come to the owns like this and just keep going, that's all you can do, it's, it's doing your best. It's really disheartening, you know, you have to go back and sleep in the car at the end of the day, it's, yeah, it takes a lot of you and get up for work the next morning, it's madness, madness. And you've been doing that for how many months? Doing it since July of last year. I was renting property in Crumlin and then my landlord wanted to sell. Obviously, I had to leave. Couldn't find anywhere to take me, I suppose, the amount of people that are looking for properties at the minute. So I've been sofa surfing for the last almost year, since April 2022, April yeah. last year. Um, I have a three-year-old, so I've been doing it with him, just kind of hopping from place to place since then. We're at the age now where we can't live in our home anymore. And my girlfriend is living with our mother. And we're just looking to set up together, basically. So how optimistic are you that you'll find somewhere? I don't know. I mean, how optimistic can you be if it's like this all the time? We're being made homeless at the end of this month. Me, my four kids, my two grandkids. Um, the stress of it is diabolical. My landlady asked the council to buy my premises for me, to rent to me. Um, they told my landlady they would look into it, and that was the end of it. They never heard anything else. We end up in a homeless world. We can only take a certain amount of stuff with us. But the winter, it was hard. Christmas was horrible. The girls' birthdays were horrible. They got clothes because we could pack that. Even my pet, I have a German Shepherd dog. I've had him 10 years, and I have to find another home for him as well. It's just the realness of it all now. I count down the days until I have to literally drag whatever belongings I've accumulated with me through the homeless, and that's the inevitability of it. And I'm scared, and I'm scared for my kids. Louise Burns report on Morning Ireland. And on today with Claire Byrne, Enoch Burke and his family. Many of you will have seen the footage by now, the unprecedented scenes in the Court of Appeal yesterday when members of Enoch Burke's family were removed from court by Gardaí. This court would try to murder. 
Well, that was some of the Burke family outside court yesterday, and this followed the rejection of Enoch Burke's appeal, which challenged injunctions granted by the High Court last year, directing him not to trespass at Wilson's Hospital School in Multifarnham in County Westmeath. Court's correspondents have described it not only as unprecedented, but chaotic, fraught with a cacophony of noise at various stages of the proceedings. I'm joined now by RTE's legal affairs correspondent, Orla O'Donnell, and also by Mick Clifford, special correspondent with the Irish Examiner. Thank you both for joining us this morning. Orla, first to you. Unprecedented is probably the key word that has been used since those scenes yesterday. Will you talk us through exactly what you witnessed in the court? Yes, Claire. Well, we overused that word, but it certainly was uh, valid yesterday. Um, Mr Justice George Birmingham, the president of the appeal court, decided to read out his judgment pretty extensively instead of just reading his conclusions. And he said he was doing this so that justice would be seen to be done. And the trouble started as it became clear that the court was going to rule against Enoch Burke. At that stage, Amy Burke stood up and she interrupted the judge and she started shouting about her brother's constitutional rights. I think it was at a point where the judge had perhaps signalled that he was saying that the case was not about what the Burkes had described as transgenderism. The three judges then left the court for a few minutes. Martina Burke, uh, Enoch Burke's mother, shouted at them that they were bowing at the altar of transgenderism. They came back in shortly after and said they would continue but would stop completely if if there were any more interruptions. Uh, Mr Justice Birmingham continued and he got to a part of his judgment where he suggested that part of Mr Burke's case was an exercise in creating soundbites. And that's essentially when all hell broke loose. Uh, Enoch Burke called the judges a disgrace. Other members of the Burke family were shouting at the judges. The judges left the courtroom and Gardaí then attempted to clear the court. And then there were scenes which were, as you say, chaotic. They were disturbing. They were, in fact, a bit distressing. Um, Enoch Burke and other family members were clinging onto furniture, onto the court benches and each other as they attempted to resist the Gardaí who were trying to remove them. Um, some of us counted around 10 to 12 Gardaí in court at times. Uh, the Burke family members were dragged or pushed out of court, court a me first. Uh, and then there was quite a lot of chaos and quite a lot of highly charged emotions as the Gardaí attempted to remove the Burke parents, Sean and Martina Burke. Uh, Enoch Burke was shouting, leave my father alone again and again. And oddly enough, this was being repeated by his mother, Martina Burke, who was saying, leave my father alone. He also called Gardaí thugs. Uh, Simeon Burke was removed from court. Then Enoch, who was shouting and clinging onto the benches. And finally, Isaac was dragged from the court by his elbows. Uh, He sat down on the floor under a bench and then the Gardaí took him by the elbows and dragged him outside. And outside, as you heard in that little clip there, they continued shouting, they continued chanting about their constitutional rights, about their Christian beliefs. And the whole thing was distressing to witness, um, disturbing. Um, we've ne- I'm covering the courts for almost 17 years. I've never seen such scenes. We all had to move from our seats, the journalists, the lawyers and school children, um, as the scuffles continued around us. Uh, there were some transition year students in court who certainly got a more interesting afternoon that they bargained for, and some even were a little upset by what they were seeing. Uh, court staff, lawyers, everyone who witnessed what happened was, I think, a little bit shocked by what had happened. So tell us then, Orla, how the case got to this point and what was actually decided then yesterday. Well, this was, um, Mr Burke was essentially appealing against a number of orders of the High Court, but this appeal was dealing primarily with the two injunctions granted against him, the temporary injunction August 
the one in the subsequent injunction in September, uh, directing him not to trespass at Wilson's Hospital School. He says these orders were manifestly unlawful and unconstitutional. He has been refusing to abide by them. Uh, he was suspended from a school in full pay after a number of incidents surrounding the request of a student to use they pronouns and his very public opposition to that request during a court service. Uh, and he has kept attending the school even after a €700 Euro daily fine for contempt, which now stands at around €29,000 or just under that. There were three judgments. I'm not sure if it was intended that all three were going to re all three judges were going to read their judgments. But as it happened, matters were interrupted when the president of the court was a little over halfway through his. His case was rejected. His appeals were rejected comprehensively. Um, Mr. Justice Birmingham said in the first in relation to the first injunction, it was inconceivable that any judge wouldn't have granted this, this injunction on the case presented. He also rejected Mr Burke's appeal against the second, more permanent injunction. And Judge Birmingham said that, in his view, the case was not about what Mr Burke had chosen to describe as transgenderism. The judge said he would prefer to use the term transgender rights. He said the school was given a choice. It could respond positively or negatively to a child who wanted support, and they took the view that the child should be facilitated. And uh, Ms Justice Moira Whedon, in her judgment, was very strong in her ruling about Mr Burke's attitude towards the child at the centre of this case and his behaviour. Uh, she said the school could not countenance the risk that a, school would, that a student would be exposed to harm. And because Mr Burke was refusing to say to the school how he intended to communicate with the student from day to day, uh, she said he, that there was such a risk the student could be exposed to harm. And she said the safety, health and welfare of the student was of central importance. And she also said Mr Burke's behaviour at a school service where he publicly challenged the principal about the request from the student uh, for they pronouns to be used and a new name to be used. She said this behaviour was wholly disrespectful towards the principal. It was entirely inappropriate and she said it was simply outrageous. And Claire asked Mick Clifford about the family. Mick Clifford, just to sort of pull back from yesterday and take a broader view of this, just tell us a little bit about who the Burks are, why have we all heard about them so much and before today? Yes, Claire, they're a family from uh, Castle Bar in County Mayo, the family of 10. Uh, they were all homeschooled by their mother, whom Orla referred to there, um, who also, I understand, had a sort of a school there that may have included some from outside the family who were homeschooled there. But they all went on, they were highly educated at third level as well, and a number of them attended NUI Galway, as it's now called, and that forum was where some of them came to prominence. In the first instance, they had a very early legal victory, or not they specifically, but Isaac Burke, one of them, he um, took an action against NUI Galway on the basis that his PhD supervision was sorely lacking and that he did not get a proper education in that respect. And Judge Raymond Gork uh, agreed with him and awarded him €13,000 in damages. So that was an early victory from that point of view. However, and there was a related case to that, also concerning NUI Galway, and that involved an action by four of the siblings, Enoch, Amy, Isaac and Kezia, and that was brought to challenge a lifetime ban from membership of college societies in the university. Now, the siblings were all members of the Christian Union Society in the college, and their claim was that the ban was discriminatory under the Equal Status Act on the grounds of their religion. Judge Grork found that, yes, there were procedural issues around the ban and how it had been imposed to them, but he also said there were aggravating circumstances. And he listed some of those, and they included the siblings who failed to cooperate with an investigation, 
um, the, their efforts to hinder the investigation, their failure to give a truthful account, and he said from the bench, their fabrication of accounts and their misuse of CUS funds. Now, that was that, and then bring it forward to the pandemic, and we'll all remember the daily um, press conferences that were held by Tony Houlihan and his colleagues in the HSE. And la I think it was in late 2020, um, Jemima Burke, another of the family, she had very robust exchanges with Tony Houlihan at one of those press conferences. Her question was described as intemperate, and a video of the exchanges went viral. So they came very much to prominence in relation to that. Now, then, finally, before Enoch's latest um, issues with, with the court, there was Amy Burke, who was a solicitor. She was employed by leading law firm Arthur Cox in Dublin. And between one thing and another, she was dismissed. There was interpersonal issues, and there were some issues that were brought to various forums within the practice, and ultimately it led to her dismissal. She brought an action against that to the Workplace Relations Commission. Now, at the outset of that hearing, she objected to the adjudicating officer because she said he had connections to Arthur Cox's counsel. In any event, the hearing continued, but it was repeatedly interrupted, first of all by Amy herself and subsequently by her mother. In the end, the adjudicating officer decided that he couldn't hear the case and therefore had to throw it out because, simply because it was impossible to carry on with the public hearing. Uh, subsequent to that, Amy Burke went to the High Court over the issue and there, the judge tried to turn off her microphone if she didn't stop interrupting, but that seemed to be the end of any interruptions in that affair. Those all preceded then the latest issue, which is around as Orlout laid out uh, mm -hmm. in a park in the school and his issues there. Now, I know you weren't in court yesterday, Mick, but you have been in court many times over the years and you've heard what Orla has described there. You've seen the pictures, you've seen the footage. Have you ever seen anything like it before? No, I, I absolutely never. I mean, just to give you a flavour, I've been covering courts for over 20 years, a flavour, just a few small kind of things. One, there's a very high-profile gangland murder trial and you could nearly feel the violence in the room at the time when the widow of the deceased person came to give a victim impact statement. Uh, there was other things like, um, for instance, at the end of another very high-profile murder trial, the whole court erupted in cheers, including, I have to say, some of the Gardaí. It was nearly a, a release of pent-up emotions. I had never seen anything like that prior to that. Another issue, a civil case, uh, a, a judge jailed uh, some of the protesters for a, a couple of weeks or something, and somebody shouted up from the back of the room with the judge, shame on you. And, and I recall distinctly seeing the judge leaving the bench at the time, and she... You could see her pausing to decide, will I deal with this or will I let it go? And she decided to let it go. But th those are the kinds of things I've seen along the way. And nothing would compare to what happened yesterday. Mick Clifford and Orla O'Donnell from Today with Claire Byrne. And on Morning Ireland, the plight of Bernard Phelan in prison in Iran. The family of an Irish man who has been detained in Iran since October is calling on the authorities here not to reopen an embassy in Tehran. Bernard Phelan was recently sentenced to six and a half years in jail for providing information to an enemy country, a charge he denies. Bernard Phelan's father, Vincent, is 97 and he's worried he'll never see his only remaining son again. Bernard's brother, Declan, died of an illness 16 years ago. The family has made a YouTube video to show to Bernard in the event that his father dies before he's released. Let's hear a little of Vincent from that video. Every day we 
wake up in the morning, I'm always taking a bird. I've lost one son, and I've only one left, Bernard. For the next few years, I don't know how long I'm going to live. No one does. But I rely on Bernard to help me. Vincent Phelan, Bernard Phelan's sister, Caroline Massey Phelan, joins us now on the line. And thanks so much for talking to us this morning. Will you tell us a little about how things are for your brother at the moment? Are you able to stay in touch with him? Yes, good morning, Rachel. Yes, um, we are in touch with him, um, but via um, the embassy. So we can send a message to the embassy and then they read it out to Bernard and then Bernard reads out a message to them and they read it back to and then send, send it back to us. Oh, gosh, that must be very difficult. What <laughs> brought him to Iran? He, he'd been there several times before, I gather. He was. Bernard is a consultant in tourism and has been working in tourism oh, for all his career. And he went to Iran on holidays in 2017 fell in love with the country and advised the tour operator he was travelling with that they could do better and expand um, sales to Iran um, with his help. So he became their consultant and he was travelling back and forth to Iran um, since 2017, also going to international shows around Europe and promoting the destination and the tour operator that he was a consultant for. So what happened? What went wrong? He was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Um, there, um, he was in Mashhad. He was touring with the CEO of the tour operator looking for new venues, new regions to promote. And he was hauled off the road, bag over his head, locked away for two weeks and we didn't know where he was and, and has since been in a jail in Iran for the last five months. And what have the authorities said? I mean, as I was saying in the introduction, he was convicted by a court. Um, What precisely was he accused of? He was accused of um, propaganda against the regime or sharing secrets. But, you know, this is all ridiculous. Berners denies all of this. He's one among many European hostages in Iran at the moment. Iran has been taking hostages for many years. Um, they use it as a bargaining tool, um, taking hostages. And Bernard was an ideal hostage to take. He was a European and let's use him to negotiate whatever they want from Europe. Now, That's one basically of, what happened. One of the things that makes this very difficult for your family is that Bernard's health isn't great. No. And that we would, you know, very much ask the Iranian government to provide clemency to Bernard on humanitarian grounds. He's very ill and he has hypertensive heart disease and also discal disease. um, And all of that are very dangerous. And also the worst thing, well, maybe not the worst out of that, but he's going blind. Bernard had an operation in August and it hasn't been followed up on with correct hospital, you know, care. And he can only see a metre um, meter and a half in front of him now. So he is really a very ill man. He's 64 and an Irish citizen being held in a, in, a, in, a, in a place where he shouldn't be. Now, we did get a statement from the Department of Foreign Affairs saying that the government is extremely concerned about this case and that extensive engagement with the Iranian authorities is continuing. But you'd like the government to go further. Absolutely, yes. Um, 
we you know we we do we have appreciated all of the help that the um Irish um government has given us but they need to push this further um you know Ber- Bernard is ailing now and he's on debt watch time is running out they're um potentially going to open an Irish embassy in Iran we would say how can we normalize any communication with Iran while they have locked up an innocent Irish citizen in one of their prisons. We would um, encourage Ireland to shelve plans for any embassy until Bernard is released. Caroline Massey Phelan, sister of Bernard Phelan, talking to Rachel English on Morning Ireland. And on the Ryan Tuberty Show, Dr Claire Campometu, a clinical psychologist, was talking about pandemic fallout manifesting and growing up in the great outdoors. I mean, like many of us, I spent a lot of my childhood running around fields and I don't mean that in a really idyllic sense, but mm. my mum was born on a farm in County Kildare after the war in the in the late 40s. Um, and she really had kind of nature and the environment in her core. And she taught my brother and I to, to have that as well. And so from an early age, she just was interested in having us outside and in kind of being mindful of what the environment has yeah. to offer us. And your dad? Um, my dad was less so. He was definitely somebody who loved being outside because my mum loved being outside. He was born in, in India in a giant city. And so I think had a different type of appreciation for nature and what Ireland had to offer. What a change, though. A, a giant city in India yeah. to the, the the wild countryside of Ireland. Yeah, and they actually met in Galway in, the, in the 70s as well. How? So just at the foot of a bed in Merlin Park Hospital. Yeah. <laughs> You'll have to explain. So um, my dad was, uh, he had originally intended to travel to the States and then um, came to Ireland as a kind of stopover. He was training as a doctor at the time and my mum was a physio. His name was Ravi and so he was introduced to her as Dr. Ravishing at the foot of the bed (laughs) in Merlin Park. So there was no turning back after that, was There was no turning back, no turning back. And you you lived in the UK for a while, didn't you? Yes, I was actually born there. Mm. Um, So we were born in Leeds. And and I think even, um, you know, growing up or spending the first few years of my life in a big city, I would have thought looking back on it that I might have been a bit more detached from nature. But again, mum just had us out in Mm. whatever space she could find, whether it was um, like a little walk down from where we lived or in the back garden, just with our hands in the muck and uh, looking around at what was out there. And it really did teach me just that appreciation for for the natural world. But psychology is really your thing, um, hence the doctor. Um, I I suppose because there's a lot of talk this week about psychology and quack psychologists and uh, there was a a primetime investigates the other evening. I don't know if you saw it, but you, you probably read about it or around it. Exactly, I did, I did. It's something that is on my watch list to go back and watch, but it's something I'm very aware of because for years um, it has been an unregulated discipline. This is my rant often to, to Well, why don't you have, take a little rant here among us and tell us what's, what is the rant? I suppose the rant is that um, in my experience as a psychologist, you're working with people who are in really vulnerable situations. Either their mental health is, is suffering or the mental health of somebody that they really love and they're trying to get the best supports in place for somebody. And um, there are a huge amount of mental health professionals out there who use different psychological models who are incredible at what they do. Um, But there are people out there who are... um, who are, I suppose, working in a really unethical way 
um, with people who are very vulnerable. And what does an unethical way look like in practice? Um, well, it, to be to say that you're a psychologist, you can literally, as I think the documentary showed, just put a brass plaque outside your door. So you don't need to have any training in terms of what, you know, even having being able to have a conversation with somebody who's more vulnerable, never mind helping them to understand what they might be able to do to, to help themselves. So, so in sort of like a glib fashion, I, I could walk out of here, buy a white van, say I'm a plumber, uh, go in and just to someone's house and say, look, I'll have a look around. Sure, I might as well be speaking Japanese, you know. Exactly. God, that's, so should we then, as a clients of psychologists, always ask for credentials or... You know, do some homework, uh, due diligence before you lay it all out. (laughs) Absolutely. I think it's wise. And I think with anybody who's doing something important in your life, you know, most of the time, if we're getting a plumber or a tiler or somebody into our homes or or a dentist, exactly, you're going off maybe the recommendations (laughs) or somebody else or you're at least trying to suss out maybe what their experiences are. And I think that's really wise. And Ryan asked about the impact of the pandemic on people. I work in in adult mental health services and I remember during the pandemic, it it kind of felt a little bit like a a war zone in some ways. Um, And I think um, just generally, one of the things that sustains us all is human connection. It's one of the cornerstones of resilience. Uh, And for such a long time, we were lonely and we were isolated and we were going through a very fearful time. And I think that has left its its scars. Um, Mm -hmm. And I do think that people have really struggled as a consequence. I also think that there's a lot more awareness around uh, mental health and and people are thankfully more open to coming forward and looking for help. So I think, yes, we're seeing a kind of explosion and a, and a really high demand for people who are really looking to, to help themselves. If you talk about your mental health with your peers, uh, I think it's really helpful because your peers will then say, I, I didn't I didn't think we were OK to talk about this. You know, <laughs> I think men particularly uh, might have an issue, he says, on International Women's Day, making it all about men. But, you know, it, there is an element of the, the more talk you talk about it the more liberating it is for others to you know it's 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 like a it's like a benign contagion yeah and for sure i mean anything if we can find the words to express something, it then gives somebody else permission to do the same. And I think with anything that's difficult or that requires a bit of vulnerability, the more we talk about it, the more we normalise it. And then the more we normalise it, the more OK it just becomes yeah. to have those conversations in the course of our everyday life. Healthy. When I think about this country and the damage that was done from either sweeping things under the carpet mm-hmm. or simply not talking at all, it, it caused generational, intergenerational yeah. trauma, as they call it in these yeah. days. But uh, it's good to talk as the ad used to say. Yes. Uh, let's talk about, I always refer to Barry Keoghan here uh, because he sat before me a few times and talks about his little notebook. Uh, that is his manifestation notebook. That's true. And we wanted to ask you a little bit, Claire, this morning about this idea of manifesting and manifestation. And I suppose that we should begin at the beginning and get some class of definition as to what manifestation is. Yes, yeah. And it's funny because when I think about Barry Keoghan, he's obviously achieved so much um, that it kind of flies a little bit in the face of, of what I'm of thinking skeptics. of saying yeah, this morning yeah, yeah. of skeptics uh, before of you, Before you go on, there's been about 5 million texts asking, did you win the Rose of Tralee? I did, in, I did. In what year? 2010. Okay, and yeah, have you got over it? Uh, just about, <laughs> still getting over it. Okay, well, belated congratulations, I should say. Uh, now back to Barry and the, that answers that, so you can hold the text now uh, back to uh, Barry Keoghan obviously and uh, his 
a very successful run of manifestation, yes, so-called. Yeah. Okay, go for it. I think um, the traditional idea of manifestation, and it's been around for a long time, I think it has its roots perhaps in, in Hinduism, um, but there's a, a few different parts to it. So you might have the idea of believing or, or thinking certain things about yourself, but you also have the idea that you need to take some steps mm-hmm. towards achieving whatever it is that you're thinking about. Um, and so that was the kind of typical idea around manifestation. And I have no problem with that. I think the bit that I actually have a problem with is maybe the internet or social media and how we we tend to dilute these ideas down over time and over posts because we love an old hot take, I think, especially, um, you know, on Instagram or social media where we we want something short and we want something snappy. Um, And so we turn these ideas um, or facts or kind of scientific theory into something that it's actually not. Okay. And so now on Instagram, manifesting can be anything from clicking a picture saying I want wealth in my life um, to actually taking all of those steps that I was talking about earlier. Because the steps earlier, manifestation as as described sounds to me like, you know, if I was a boy, when I was a boy, I would have had dreams and then I would have ambitions and I'd say I'd love to present this programme or that programme. Is that manifestation or you know what I mean I'm just worried about labels and uh, and, and just reconfiguring language to suit sure yeah a it's psychological an element moment. Okay, an it's element. an element of it but I think with manifestation with anything when it comes to achieving your goals the important bit is actually taking action is goal orientated action and so it's all good and well to have an idea that if you think in a certain way or if you have a certain dream that then you can just go out and achieve it but actually you need to take steps towards doing Doing it. Yes, clicking isn't enough then. Clicking is not enough. <laughs> I've tried clicking yeah. enough. I mean, I've been doing the research on this. It's not working. You haven't become a multimillionaire. I haven't, yeah, not yeah, yet, okay. not yet. So Ryan asked about the things to be wary of when it comes to manifestation. I think there's a couple of, of risks with it. The first is that it can actually be quite damaging for people with particular types of mental health problem. You imagine somebody with depression who already... Um, often feels maybe ashamed or guilty or not good enough in some way. And if they um, are on the receiving end of this information, that if they just think in a different way, then they'll be fine. I mean, that's even more shaming and more um, uh, hurtful, I suppose, and can actually worsen things. Or somebody with obsessive compulsive disorder, where the actual treatment is to help them understand that just by thinking something, it's not going to make it happen. And that is actually you know, with manifestation or with that idea that you can just think it and make it happen. That's something that's really unhealthy. And I think it also really ignores the kind of um, systemic problems that a lot of people face, things like racism or oppression or social disadvantage, like real barriers, huge barriers that get in the way of people achieving their dreams. So so marry the two then, the, 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 the racism and the other things you mentioned there uh, with manifestation. How can they, where, where's the link there? So I suppose if somebody really wants to achieve something, but there's a barrier in place that is put up by society. So for example, somebody who um, we know that racism affects an awful lot of people and that people who are um, of a different skin colour experience discrimination and that discrimination stops them from being able to work in the industry that they may want to work in or um, have the conversations with the people they want to have the conversations with or live in a certain area or make a certain amount of money. And so there's these real systemic barriers in people's way that mean that it's extra hard for them to reach their goals. So I think it's quite an unhealthy thing to say to them then, oh, well, it's just because you're not you're not wanting it hard enough. You're not manifesting it enough. So how do we explain Barry Keoghan? <laughs> I, think, I think that Barry Keoghan is probably taking action because the important bit, I suppose, as well, is that we need to be taking action towards our goals. So we can think about them 
And these are ideas that are in lots of kind of different psychological models, you know, um, for cognitive behavioural therapy. Yeah, which talk is to a, me about that, yeah. So that's one of the most evidence-based interventions for loads of different mental health conditions. And a key, like a cornerstone of it is about tapping into how you're thinking about yourself or about the world or other people and then changing that so it's less damaging, more neutral, maybe more positive. Um, and so, so that's, you know, thinking about things in a more positive way or believing that you can do something or maybe saying things to yourself, affirmations or whatever, is a part of, of cognitive behavioural therapy. And it's also a part of manifesting. But the other bit about manifesting is taking action. And I think Barry Kogan has been great at taking action. He's been in a position where he's, he's actually in the field of work that he wants to be in and he's just moving kind of step forward one at a time. And he's getting things done. He is getting things done. And that's the, the difference. Yes. Um, I was... If you're not in, you can't win. Like if you want to win the lotto and you don't buy a ticket, then forget about it. Forget about it. Yeah, there's only so much you can do by carping at the television. You do need to get off your yeah. derriere and get busy. Dr. Claire Campometti from The Ryan Tuberty Show. And in the afternoon on the live line, Aaron Doran called Joe after he was asked to remove a bench to commemorate his daughter Ada's short life. Um, we were actually t- informed on Friday by a tour party. Um, we actually put the bench up on Tuesday the 28th, which would have been Ada's birthday. Yeah. And then we got a phone call from a tour party on Friday afternoon to say the bench had to be removed or it would be destroyed. And tell us the story of the bench. Now, the bench, um, my little girl Ada, she passed away in October 26th. She was 19 months old. Okay. Um, from a condition, it's SUDC, it's unexplained, un- sudden unexplained death in the other child. Okay. So we actually never got answers to why she passed. She just literally put her to bed one night and she just passed on us. But the bench itself, now we wouldn't be, I wouldn't be spiritual or anything, but my wife actually went online to see a medium. Okay. And me and my wife have been talking about getting a bench built with her name on it. We call it Ada's garden, not a grave. We just call it a garden. It's a bit nicer. Mm-hmm. And the medium came back and said, and Ada said, well, to the medium, we don't know. Get the bench built, sit with me, and it'll bring you some comfort. And where, would the, so we, where, was, where was the bench located? Um, it's actually located in an empty plot beside Ada's garden. Okay. In the in, um, in Borna-Brina Cemetery? Some subsequently we actually bought yesterday we bought the plot besides. Okay. So to but they, the reason they had given us to remove the bench was they oh. wanted to reseed the lawn area. Okay. But just two empty graves that haven't been dug. There's graves that have only been dug recently that are still three foot high with rubble. So I can't see why they'd want to reseed. it would be it'd be pointless reseeding at the moment. But I was you looking I mean? at photographs this morning of Borhanabrina Cemetery. Yeah. And there's quite a significant number of benches, tables, places to sit, beautiful Spider-Man couches, beside graves. Beside it's, graves it's and seen... on graves, Joe. I think, it's like, I, think it's a lo- I think it's a nice idea. Now, we've got the bench built without a back on it in order for people who are neighbouring us in um, the graves so they could sit with their loved ones. Okay. It wasn't, we didn't, we just got one built without a back on it. So you can just sit on it whatever whatever direction. But now you, um, you own that other grave as well. We own the other grave as well. Why, we why did you buy that? Just literally to have the room so it wouldn't be, in case, okay. in, in case in a couple of months' time, the way they'd done the four slot of graves, Joe, was they dug one, they left one empty, they dug one, they left one empty, and then they decided just to keep on digging, digging okay. straight after each other. So we have a plot each side of us empty. 
Okay. And I didn't want to, in case someone had purchased it, I didn't want to put the bench. I, I, I went to look for the bench in case someone purchased it and I had to remove the bench, if you know what I mean. Okay, so you, so, but, well, I presume graves aren't cheap in Dublin, are they? No, well, um, the empty plot without digging costs us €2,400 yesterday. Wow. It costs us €2,900 for Ada's garden yeah. initially, that's to dig, and then another €3,500, €4,000 for just a headstone. And is the bench still there, Aaron? Yeah, the bench, I don't think they'll move. I, 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 they probably will now after being on the radio, but there's 44 other benches in that lawned area and they've never been moved. Now, I don't, now, come here, as I said, if you had said, listen, we want to just reseed the ground. Yeah. Could you move the bench until the ground is settled and the ground, the grass has come back up? I'd be, I would have been, I would have had no problem with that. I would have just put them in my back garden okay. and then brought it back up at a later date. But they actually just said, listen, it has to be moved or it'll be destroyed. And gave us no other option. Now, there's a, at the back of the, the grave, there's a foundation stone. We could have put it there. We could have put it on the concrete in front of the grave. Mm-hmm. But no, that wasn't good enough for them. It had to be removed or it's going to be destroyed. And did they say to you, like, well, the other 43 benches have, they came to us beforehand. Did you go to them beforehand? No, we didn't go to them beforehand. The thing with some of the, there is um, benches down with, in concrete. And I think they were the ones that were allowed. Okay. I think they were given permission. I'm not unsure about the other benches, to be honest with you. I can't see them having... Look, they might have permission. I don't know. I might have just went the wrong way. But they didn't tell you... They didn't say that to you? No, they didn't. And they said it's a lawn area, but there's three sections. We're in A3 now. And they're saying that's that's strictly lawn. You can't put a side down. You can't put at and down. Or you can't have a headstone. You can have a headstone, but you can't have surrounds. Or you can't have... You You can put a headstone up, but you can't put the block surrounds down. Okay. And Ada would have been too last Tuesday, so Joe asked Aaron about sudden, unexplained death. You have, of course, and, and tragically you've had to look into um, this sudden, sudden uh, death, as they say, of young people, sudden, yeah, sudden. A sudden, unexplained death in children. And yeah. if, if how, without frightening people, I know you don't want to, but is is it common across the world, or is there certain countries where? No, well, I know of I know of two that happened this year. But in the UK, there's 66 million people roughly, and I think there's 40 cases over the age of one a year. So if you do that to Ireland, it's two or three a year here. I think. Okay. Now I I I had aided that day. Um, I put her up to bed at seven o'clock, and went up to bed went up to check on her about ten o'clock to give her a bottle of water before. Look, I did every night before I went to bed. Okay. And I just I just went in, and she was just. Um, she was sort of lifeless in the car. She was a bit clammy. She wasn't, I don't think she'd passed, but she was clammy and I let out a scream. My wife um, is a child oh. practitioner. She ran in and performed CPR on Ada until the paramedics came and then they transferred her to the hospital and worked on her for 40, 50 minutes and then she just pronounced, pronounced dead then in Tala Hospital. And did you get any explanation or any insight? No, that's what we actually got. We actually met with the coroner there roughly a month ago and okay. it's just lit- it's literally just put down to sudden unexplained death of a child but you don't actually get any answers they say the heart and the brain just stop together and that's it yeah. you don't actually get any any answers at all now we've, to, we've sent off her samples for genetic testing just to see is there any we've, she's a little sister Ada or Anna which is Anna's 10 months a day yeah. just in case Anna, we just were fearful oh, of course. for yeah, yeah. Anna now so I can see you I can understand why you're fearful, but what what can you do? There's literally, there's genuinely nothing you can do. You, know? you okay. just, I literally wake, we're waking up literally every 20 minutes okay. during the night. 
just to check on her. We have a we have a thing called an outlet monitor on her leg that gives you a heart rate and her oxygen levels, and we still don't trust that. If you know what I mean? It's just your head won't let you. Your head just you want to check yourself. Like. Because what happened, Ada Maria, came completely and totally, absolutely out of the blue. You know, that's what I'm saying. She was a fit, healthy child. She was so, yeah. so clever, so loving. We actually thought she would have had murder when Anna came along, but she was just a perfect little sister. She was actually, we thought, we were, she, she's a redhead, so we thought she was going to have the redhead temper. Okay. But she just actually oh, just was a little pet with her. There was no, there was no signs of yeah. She was perfect. She was meeting all our milestones. She had a good few awards. She loved her little, she had two little dogs at home. She loved the two of them so much. And went so, to bed happy and healthy. That's a terrible tragedy. It really is. Such a young age and, and unexplained. That's Aaron on the live line with Joe Duffy. And if Aaron's story has affected you, you can find support and a listening ear at rte.ie slash helplines. And on Morning Ireland, the Irish Oscar nominees heading over for the ceremony. Audrey Carvel spoke to on Colleen Kuhn star Catherine Clinch's dad, Tom, about the pure excitement of it all. It's sky high, Audrey, sky high. Uh, it's been a long time coming. We've known about this for a few weeks and it's all been building up to this and uh, everybody's very excited. We feel like the whole country's behind us, so we're, we're flying the flag. Who is going to the actual ceremony on Sunday night? Well, in our uh, little family of four, we have two tickets. So um, Mummy and Daddy are taking a back seat and Catherine has decided to bring her big sister, Anna, to the ceremony with her. Uh, So I think the two of them will have an absolute ball. If they're allowed to take photos, they will and they'll send them out to us. And the two of them are very close, so they'll, they'll really enjoy it. And what about mum and dad then? Will you get to go to any parties? Oh, we'll all get to go to the parties. We're being uh, wined and dined by the Irish Consul there in LA, uh, Marcella Smith. Thank you very much to her. She's having a viewing party in her residence and all the people from TG Cahar and Screen Ireland and ourselves and, and a few of the other and Colleen Kuhn team will we'll all be there and we'll meet up with, with the cast and crew who are at the event at a, a special after party afterwards. And have the outfits been planned to precision? Uh, they have. Uh, Catherine is going to be wearing uh, a dress specially made for her by the Irish designer Katerina Coyne, who's uh, formerly a lead dancer in Riverdance and now is a dress designer and runs a boutique in Beverly Hills in Los Angeles. So we're delighted about that. She hasn't actually seen the final dress yet. We won't get to see it until we get to Beverly Hills. But Katerina was over and taking all the fittings and showing the fabric. And uh, we, we, we loved what we saw. So um, Catherine is very excited about that. Could you ever have believed when Catherine was starting out on this journey in this film, making this film, Tom, that you would end up going to the Oscars? Absolutely not. It was in the middle of COVID, Audrey, uh, when she did the audition and she said that she thought it'd be fun to get six weeks off school. Uh, School wasn't much fun at the time and um, little did we know there were hundreds and hundreds of of young uh, girls auditioning and she was lucky enough to get the part. We were just heading off on our holidays to West Cork and she heard and we spent the whole journey down. Catherine and I in the car ringing uh, 
grandpa and various other uh, family members to tell them she was so excited, but we just thought it would be a bit of a lark. It has been such an incredible year, a real roller coaster. How has she dealt with it? Because she's so young. It's been very exciting, but it's also quite daunting for somebody of her age. She uh, was at the stage when she was moving to secondary school and that in itself is a hard thing to do. So she was having to cope with all this fame and attention at the same time. And uh, she's a a very uh, smart young lady and um, she's tough and resilient and we try to keep her feet on the ground. I was reading the comments from the producer, Cleonany Cruelly, who said that as soon as she saw Catherine's audition tape, she knew that they had their actor for the part. Which side of the family does she get her acting talent from, Tom? Well... Her mother, you, you you may know, was uh, nominated for a Grammy. Um, she's a singer and she was one of the founding members and um, composers behind the Irish music group Celtic Woman. So I think she got some of her talent from her. And then there's a bit of a background with, with me. Uh, I have to say, when I was younger, but uh, Catherine won't like me saying that. But yeah, I did a bit of acting when I was younger. feels like a former life now. But Maeve and I both knew growing up, even though she didn't do any acting classes really much, she did a bit of song and dance here and there in a few school plays. But you could tell that she had talent. Tom Clinch, father of on Colleen Kuhn, actor Catherine Clinch, from Morning Ireland with Audrey Carvel. Then later, business journalist Adam McGuire was talking film finances on Today with Claire Byrne. We're in the middle of movie awards season and next Sunday we'll all be watching the red carpet very closely to see if any of the Irish hopefuls might return with a golden statue from Los Angeles. But before you get a chance of getting a gong, you have to make the film. So what challenges face someone trying to get a movie project off the ground? Adam McGuire has been looking at all of this and he's here now. So Adam... Making a film is primarily a creative project, but what does somebody need to get started in the first place? Yeah, it's a really complex industry behind the films. You know, it is a creative process and we think of it rightly so because someone said to me today, you have to have a good script, first of all. You have to have a good cast and crew to make it happen, to make something that people want to see. But in order for all of that to happen, you there are a lot of pieces that, that have to be in place first. And it can be a long process, you know, three to four years from, from page to screen uh, is kind of the standard. And of course, a lot of it revolves around money because it's an expensive business, even at the lower end. You know, Banshees of Inish Aaron costs around $20 million to make, which in Hollywood terms is quite cheap. You yeah. know, the Top Gun Maverick <laughs> was $170 million. Uh, Black Panther uh, 2 was $250 million, but $20 million is still a lot of money in, in normal terms in the real world. On Colin Kuhn, somewhere in the region of maybe $1 million, which is very cheap by Hollywood standards, but it's still a million. It's still a lot of money for, mm-hmm. for someone to raise to try and make a project. So you're going to step us through it, right? Let's yeah. imagine that we have here, between the two of us now, a <laughs> fabulous script. Yeah. Where do we go? Well, the best place to start is a few steps before we have our <laughs> fabulous script because whether you're a writer or a producer or director, get going straight to feature films is, is a bit ambitious. And uh, what tends to happen in Ireland and, and internationally as well is people cut their teeth on smaller projects like short films, uh, maybe even ads or music videos or other productions to get experience. So uh, on Colin Kuhn, director Colin Braid, a good example, he did a lot of short films before he made a feature film. He also directed a few ads in his time and that's that's a common route for, from some big directors. Uh, uh, Spike Jones, David Lynch, Ridley Scott all worked in advertising before they actually 
got their name in, in big films. Martin McDonough, of course, started in theatre. Uh, the, the beauty queen of, of Lanann was 12 years, uh, a premiere 12 years before in Bruges. He also made a short film, Six Shooter, before he, he started making a feature film. Mm-hmm. And what they're doing there is they're building up experience, they're building up contacts in the industry, but ultimately they're showing people, I can take an idea and a story and actually turn it into something that people okay, want to sit down So now watch. we've learned that you need the script, but you also need a background and, exp- and some experience. So let's imagine we have that. Now what do we do? Well, d- depending on the exact state of, of our script and you know no offence or anything it's probably not great <laughs> we need <laughs> our a bit of script t- our script yeah we let's be we have to be honest about this Claire we need need to work on a bit and some of it is, is making it a good script but it's also about making it practical because you know you could have this idea of, of you know a big budget sci-fi film and you know, you're not going to raise the money for that so you need to strip it down maybe look at reducing the locations all of that takes work so what you do is you go to Screen Ireland the, the state agency for film and TV and you can get a development grant literally to develop your idea these are open to writers directors producers and another thing they'll do is, is help put you in touch with other people because this is the time you need to start building you need to get a producer maybe director maybe start thinking about your cast and crew and start building the project together and, and actually make it something that could possibly be Okay you know. so our script has gone through the experts we've had some help in honing it now are we ready to make our film no, Now we're ready to start raising money to oh. make our, our film so ideally you want all your money in place before you actually shoot the film and this is where your producer comes into them and one of their big jobs is, is looking for the options in terms of raising money Again, Screen Ireland is somewhere you'll go. They do regular rounds of production funding for uh, projects. So does the Broadcast Authority of Ireland. Both of those uh, uh, will, will give you a certain amount based on the total budget, so a percentage of the total amount. But they required a lot of detailed financial information before you, you can actually get the funding from them. So you need your creative vision, you need what the project is, but you also need your budget, your your financial plan, where you're getting the money from, who's on board, who are your cast and crew, where are you going to shoot? And, you know, the more detail, the better. And essentially, you have to think of this like a startup, that, you know, you need to have your pitch book, you need to have your 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 uh, your rationale and your business plan. Your investors. And the more detail, the better, the, the more likely you're going to get investors so, on board. So where are we going to get this money from, Adam? Well, Screen Ireland, as I say, is, is one option, uh, but they're only going to give you a sum of the budget. Uh, assuming it's over €100,000, you'll get about 65% maximum from them. So no matter what, how much they're going to give you, you're going to need to, to plug the gap somewhere else. And this is where you start looking at international studios, disc distributors. Adam Maguire from Today with Claire Byrne. And that's it for Playback Daily. So mind yourself till next time. <laughs> 